NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission asteroid sample plummets towards Earth. Capsule will contain some of oldest materials formed in solar system. On Sunday morning, somewhere above the Utah desert, a parachute will open, and a capsule containing about two hundred fifty grams of rubble will float to the ground. As it descends, four helicopters bearing scientists, engineers, and military safety personnel will race across the arid landscape to recover the precious cargo. Because this is not just any old dirt; these are four point six billion-year-old chunks of space rock that could not only shed light on how planets formed. But how life itself began. These are some of the oldest materials formed in our solar system, says Ashley King of the National History Museum in London. Samples from asteroids tell us what all those ingredients were for making a planet like the Earth, and they also tell us what the recipe was. So, how did those materials come together and start mixing up together to end up with habitable environments? The final act of NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission might seem like the opening sequence of an action movie, but it is the culmination of a seven-year journey in which a robotic spacecraft the size of a transit van. Was sent to study and then plunder the pile of rubble that comprises the asteroid Bennu. The capsule containing this quarry is expected to be released from the spacecraft at o six forty two EDT on Sunday, and enter Earth's atmosphere four hours later. Traveling at twenty-seven thousand six hundred fifty miles per hour, as it plummets towards Earth, its path will be tracked, with parachutes deployed to slow its descent to about eleven miles per hour at touchdown. Once the team recover the capsule, it will be loaded into a metal crate, wrapped. And transported by helicopter to a temporary facility. On Monday, it will be whisked to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston. While scientists say there is little danger of the samples posing risk to Earth, they stress avoiding contamination in the other direction is paramount. Filtered air will be allowed to flow into the capsule. As it plummets to Earth to avoid leaks that could cause contamination, while the capsule will subsequently be hooked up to a flow of nitrogen. One aim of the mission is to better understand how to predict and defend Earth against potential asteroid strikes. An endeavor King said would be aided by analyzing. The physical properties of the samples, such as their density and porosity, 
Indeed, Bennu is classed as a potentially hazardous asteroid, with NASA suggesting that after the mid-2100s and until at least 2300, it has a 1 in 1750 chance of crashing into Earth. Another significant area of research of research is the asteroid's carbon-rich surface, which scientists are keen to study to explore whether such objects could have brought ingredients crucial to life, such as organic substances and water, to Earth. King is part of a small team that will carry out the first investigations of the asteroid material in Houston on Wednesday. We have three days to try and very quickly characterize what minerals are in there and roughly what is its composition, he says, adding that in particular the researchers are keen to see if water-containing minerals are present as suggested by observations from the spacecraft. Parts of the samples will subsequently be studied by myriad scientists working on the mission, with fragments also expected to be sent to NASA's partners from the Canadian and Japanese space agencies. The rest will be preserved for research by others, including future scientists. Professor Sarah Russell also of the NHM and the deputy lead for mineralogy and petrology on the mission, will be studying the samples using techniques, including scanning electron microscopy. She says, I'll be looking for tiny grains in there that formed right at the beginning of the solar system. Before the planets formed, these grains were free-floating bits of dust, and can tell us what the environment was like then and how long planet building took. I'll also be looking at how the minerals have changed over the history of the asteroid. That will tell us about how much water it contained as well as what temperatures it's experienced. While space missions by Japan have previously recovered tiny samples of different asteroids, the Osiris-Rex capsule would, will contain the largest asteroid sample ever collected. Such missions, says King, are crucial as they give scientists access to pristine material of a known provenance and context. Unlike meteorites, which are often of unknown origin and contaminated by traveling through Earth's atmosphere and landing on the ground. Professor Neil Bowles of the University of Oxford, who will be heating up fragments of Bennu to explore the infrared radiation they emit, says one of the benefits of retrieving the samples is that scientists can compare the results of laboratory tests with remote observations made by the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. That, he says, can help researchers calibrate the latter, allowing them to be more accurately explore differences in composition across the surface of Bennu. 
but Carrie Donaldson Hanna, a planetary geologist at the University of Central Florida, who has been working with the Oxford team, says such ground truthing could also help scientists interpret observations of other asteroids in the solar system that can only be studied by telescope or craft. That's really the icing on the cake, she says. The UK's royal collection has discovered a long-lost Artemisa Gentileschi painting that was left to collect dust in storage for a century. An incredibly rare long-lost painting by Artemisia Gentileschi has been rediscovered in the UK's royal collection. The Italian Baroque painter produced Suzanne and the Elders while working with her father Orazio at the court of King Charles I in London in the 1630s. Artemisia was a strong, dynamic, and exceptionally talented artist, whose female subjects, including Susanna, look at you from their canvases with the same determination to make their voices heard that Artemisia showed in the male-dominated art world of the 17th century, said Deputy Surveyor of the King's Pictures, Anna Reynolds, in a press statement. Until now, the painting had been misattributed to the French school. It was left to collect dust in storage at Hampton Court Palace for over 100 years, falling into a very bad condition. The masterpiece was rescued thanks to the expertise of art historian Nico Muntz and a team of the Royal Collection's curators, who were researching the whereabouts of paintings that were presumed to have been lost or sold from a royal collection after Charles I was executed in 1649. An avid art collector and patron, Charles I had owned seven paintings by Artemisia, but it was long believed that only one self-portrait as the allegory of painting circa 1638, survived. Upon closer inspection of works in storage, the curators managed to match the description of Susanna and the Elders to the neglected canvas now attributed to Artemisia. Allowing their hopes to be raised, the experts arranged for the painting to be cleaned and conserved. Their suspicions were confirmed when a CR, referring to Carolus Rex, was found on the back of the canvas, indicating the work had once belonged to Charles I. Its history had now been traced thanks to official records that show it was commissioned by the king's wife, Henrietta Maria, in around 1638-39. One of the most exciting parts of this painting's story is that it appears to have been commissioned by Queen Henrietta Maria while her apartments were being redecorated for a royal birth, said Muntz. The work hung over the fireplace in her withdrawing chamber, a private room for relaxing and receiving a small number of guests. 
the painting was returned to the king's son, Charles II, after the restoration in 1660, where it hung in Somerset House. A watercolour from 1819 shows it leaning against a wall in the Queen's bedchamber at Kensington Palace. At this time, Artemisia's reputation had waned, and the work was eventually moved to Hampton Court Palace. The last record shows that it underwent a restoration in 1862, which at the time entailed heavy overpainting before falling into obscurity. One of the very few renowned woman artists working in the 17th century, Artemisia trained under her father in Rome and worked throughout Italy and in London. She has become particularly celebrated in recent years, with the National Gallery in London acquiring self-portrait as St. Catherine of Alexandria circa 1615-17 in 2018. Another rediscovered work by Artemisia was sold by Sotheby's earlier this year. The newly restored Susanna and the Elders has gone on public display alongside her self-portrait and a painting by her father, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, at Windsor Castle, just outside London. Brazil's Supreme Court rules in favour of indigenous land rights in historic win. Court voted against agribusiness-backed attempt to prevent communities claiming land they did not physically occupy in 1988. Brazil's Supreme Court has blocked efforts to dramatically strip back indigenous land rights in what activists called a historic victory for the South American country's original inhabitants. Nine of the court's 11 members voted against what rights groups had dubbed the time limit trick, an agribusiness-backed attempt to prevent indigenous communities claiming land they did not physically occupy in 1988. There were emotional scenes outside the Supreme Court's headquarters in Brasilia on Thursday after a majority was formed to support a ruling in favour of indigenous rights. Some activists wept with joy, others danced. Long live indigenous resistance, tweeted Aloy Torina, an indigenous lawyer who is a senior official at Brazil's recently created Minister for Indigenous Peoples. Similar scenes played out across the Amazon region, which is home to about half of Brazil's 1.7 million indigenous citizens. This is a victory for struggle, a victory for rights, a victory for our history, the indigenous congresswoman Celia Sacriaba tweeted. All of Brazil is indigenous territory and the future is ancestral. Brazil's Minister for Indigenous Peoples, Sonia Guajajara, celebrated what she called a great achievement that was the fruit of years of struggle and protest. Only two Supreme Court justices 
voted in favor of the macro Marco temporal time marker thesis restricting indigenous land claims, Casio Nunes Marquez and Andre Mendonca. Both men were appointed to the Supreme Court by the former far right president Jair Bolsonaro, who activists accused of unleashing a historic assault on indigenous territories. By dismantling protection agencies and with his anti indigenous and anti environmental rhetoric. Before joining the court, Mendonca was Bolsonaro's justice minister. Ahead of Thursday's decisive hearing, activists had warned the time limit trick could scupper scores of legitimate claims for the delimitation of indigenous lands. From groups who had already been evicted from their ancestral lands or whose presence had yet to be recognized at the cutoff date. Many indigenous groups were driven from their ancestral lands during Brazil's 21 year military dictatorship, which ended in 1985. Casting her vote against a thesis, a majority of justices decided was. Unconstitutional, Judge Carmen Lucia Antunes Roja said, We are caring for the ethnic dignity of a people who have been decimated and oppressed during five centuries of history. Brazilian society had an unpayable debt to the country's native peoples, Rocha said. The indigenous rights group Survival International commemorated the defeat of what it called an attempt to legalize the theft of huge areas of indigenous lands. Dozens of uncontacted tribes could have been wiped out had such efforts prospered, the group claimed. This is a momentous historic victory for Brazil's indigenous peoples. And a massive defeat for the agribusiness lobby, said Survival's research and advocacy director Fiona Watson. Watson said the time limit trick had been part of a devastating assault on indigenous communities and the Amazon. So, this rejection of it is hugely important, not only for indigenous peoples, but for the global fight against climate change, too. The Suitor, Tom Brown's Eccentric American Tailoring by Rachel Sim. Every new employee of the American fashion designer Tom Brown receives a starter kit of his brand's clothing worth some $10,000 retail, including, among other items, two gray suits, five white Oxford shirts, one gray wool tie. And one white pocket square. An 11 page PDF lays out, through visual aids and bullet points, the rules for how to wear what Brown refers to as uniform. Never the uniform or a uniform. Top buttons must remain undone. Shirts are not to be ironed. Neckties, a required accessory. Should be tucked tightly into waistbands. Suit pants may be swapped out for a pleated skirt 
regardless of one's gender. Brown, a proponent of androgynous dressing, has been putting men in skirts for more than a decade. Exceptions to the rules are doled out cautiously. The colour navy is permitted Friday through Sunday, but discouraged during the week. Seersucker can be worn in the summer months, and white sneakers only on weekends. One afternoon in early July, I went to Avenue Montaigne, a luxury shopping promenade in Paris's 8th arrondissement, to visit Brown's French headquarters. In two days, Brown would, for the first time, present a runway show as part of Haute Couture Week. He was only one of a handful of American designers in the past 50 years to be invited to participate alongside such storied couture houses as Fendi, Chanel, and Schiaparelli. But the timing for a high fashion pageant suddenly felt off. A few days earlier, a policeman had shot and killed an unarmed teenager of Algerian descent during a traffic stop in the Paris suburbs, sparking protests across the country. I had flown in on a red eye, expecting to find a city on edge. Yet on Avenue Montaigne, the mood was serene. Pedestrians sauntered along a row of European flagship boutiques nestled in battlements of creamy limestone. Gucci, YSL, Prada, Louis Vuitton. At number 30, Christian Dior occupied the same site where, more than 75 years ago, the designer unveiled his nipped waist, new look silhouette. Brown's shop at number 17 is unmarked and open by appointment only, and when I saw the building, a blocky beige office tower that stood out from the elegant architecture like a bucktooth, I wondered if I was in the right place. Then I spotted an unmistakable trio of brown employees smoking cigarettes on the corner. One wore a suit paired with a high-top lace-up brogues, Another was in seersucker shorts and a matching cinched waistcoat. The third had on a cropped cashmere vest over a sleeveless Oxford shirt. The outfits were, the all, were all variations on the archetypal Tom Brown ensemble, a shrunken grey suit with jacket sleeves that end up above the wrists, lapels as thin and sharp as paring knives, and pant legs that are cut some three inches above the ankle, revealing what Brown likes to call male cleavage. His preferred fabric is Super 120's wool twill in medium grey, a colour that typically evokes the banal, a pencil-lead, gravel, wet cement. The Tom Brown look has always often been compared to Pee Wee Herman's archly nerdy costume or to Don Draper's office wear after a few rounds through the dryer. But it calls to my mind, too, some mischievous scamp out of a road doll book who was always conspiring to put a dead hamster in the headmistress's bed. Brown, who is 57 and launched his namesake ready-to-wear business 
20 years ago, is hardly the first fashion designer to implement a dress code among employees. For decades, the Belgian designer Martin Marcella has required staff to wear long white coats or blouse blanche at all times, nor is he the first to take a schematic approach to dressing his customers. Chanel's little black dress was, as Vogue put it in 1926, a uniform for all women of taste. But in an industry known for chasing novelty, Brown has built one of the most influential brands by iterating on a single idea. His deceptively humble goal is, as he regularly tells his, his staff, to make the grey suit look interesting. Once a menswear cult label, Tom Brown has in recent years become favoured among celebrities who wish to signal that they're game for fashion risk-taking. In 2018, the same year the Italian textile juggernaut Zegna bought a majority stake in the brand, at a valuation of $500 million, LeBron James, a longtime fan, bought his Cleveland Cavaliers teammates matching Tom Brown suits to wear to playoff games. The fashion critic Alexander Fury told me that Brown's suits hold a special appeal among big fucking straight men, quote-unquote, who like the look of muscles bulging out of fine tailoring. Brown has put the actor Oscar Isaac in a pleated skirt and the actress Christine Baranski in a corseted tuxedo. The members of Boy Genius, the queer feminist supergroup, are currently channeling the early Beatles in custom brown suits on their world tour. The musician Janelle Monet, who identifies as non-binary, attended this year's Met Gala in a Tim Burtonesque Tom Brown overcoat of black and white tweed that peeled off to reveal a giant sheer hoop skirt. Monet told me, in Tom's clothes, I feel part of a species of people who are pushing culture forward. For the Couture Show, Brown had rented the Palais Garnier, the city's grand 19th century opera house. His team had shipped the collection from New York in refrigerator boxes. On Avenue Montaigne, Preparations were taking place in a temporary atelier two floors above Brown's permanent showroom. Fifty employees sat hunched over high tables covered in white cloth, furiously making final adjustments. Some were embellishing a blazer with hundreds of sequins no bigger than a fractal. Others worked on a long overcoat of dove grey wool interlaced with rows of silver beads, mimicking the undulating texture of silk moiré. Across a hallway, in a makeshift photo studio and fitting room, a photographer was shooting a male model in a shale-coloured bell gown. One of a dozen such looks in the collection, it had exaggerated mutton sleeves and a conical skirt. A three-piece suit was inlaid down the centre of the garment, giving the impression of one outfit skin-grafted onto another. Every now and then, a muffled tinkling sounded from one corner, where Anna Scott, Brown's head of footwear, footed with pairs of stilettos that featured brass bells on the heels. 
Whatever individuality the uniformed staffers transmitted emerged in small personal flourishes, a streak of pink hair, a glimpse of a leg tattoo. The way a Catholic schoolgirl might radiate cool by adding safety pins to her pinafore. I'd worn shades of black and cream for my visit, but amid employees in uniform, any colour that wasn't grey seemed as obtrusive as flaming red. The British master, milliner Stephen Jones, who makes headpieces for Brown's shows, noticed my baseball cap and asked politely if he might rid of it a smudge. Then he whisked it into another room to rub the brim down with a wet cloth. Brown was standing in the middle of the fitting room, leaning against a marble table. He greeted me with a quick kiss on either cheek. Even in these surroundings, he stood out for the punctiliousness of his get-up. He has a strong square jaw and keeps his hair, now salt and pepper, in a tidy crew cut. He was wearing a tight sweater vest over his standard wrinkled Oxford. When everything is so well made, I think you need something that kind of throws it off a little bit, so it's not so precious, he said of the wrinkles. On his muscular legs were snug wool shorts and a pair of Tom Brown knee socks. Brown's own approach to uniform is unvarying. A former swimming, a swimmer, he runs eight miles a day until a knee injury forced him to use a treadmill. He was known to jog around the Central Park Reservoir in tailored shorts and a ca cashmere cardigan. Five years ago, he stopped wearing long pants altogether. He recalled that places like the Ritz in Paris and the Four Seasons in Milan used to give him a hard time for wearing shorts to dinner. Now, he said, they always let me in. Brown's runway presentations are known for their narrative sophistication, but his references, he told me, are more Bugs Bunny than Proust. His settings are pulled from children's fables, an old-fashioned schoolhouse, an ice skating rink, a pine forest filled with fake snow, often with a discomforting twist. For his Toy Story collection last year, he filled a room at the Jacob K. Javits Convention Center with 500 stiff teddy bears outfitted in his suits. A native of Allentown, Pennsylvania, Brown went to Catholic school again until the seventh grade and served as an altar boy, and he has framed more than 100... He has framed more than one collection around the theme of nuns and priests. For a show in 2012, he had his models emerge from coffins while narrator told the audience that they died for fashion. Johnson Hartig, one of Brown's oldest friends and the founder of the fashion label Libertine, told me that although there is something draconian and a little dystopian about Brown's creative vision, it's all done in a tongue-in-cheek, innocent kind of way.